What is the first thing to come to mind when I say games? Harry Tarantula. Superman. Harry Tarantula. Thanks. Harry Tarantula. Uh, what is this Harry Tarantula? It's a gaming store downtown on Young Street, and they sell comics too, like Superman. And this makes you think of sex? Not exactly. Look, she saw the credit card bill, all covered in Harry Tarantulas, and she freaked right out. And this makes you think of sex? It's been two weeks, man. Oh. Harry Tarantula, downtown, upstairs at 354 Young, just north of Dundas. Online at HAIRYT.com. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I'm your host, Aaron Broverman. We're on NeverSleepsNetwork.com. I can't forget to mention that. And today, it's kind of a special episode because we have someone that you might know on the podcast today. Uh, you know him from Dinosaur Comics. You know him from his work on Adventure Time. He is on Unbeatable Squirrel Girl for Marvel. And uh, he just released a book called Romeo and or Juliet, a choosable adventure. So he's bringing back the choose your own adventure genre. Please welcome Ryan North. Hello. Thank hey. you for having me. Hey, Ryan. It's good to have you. It's my pleasure. Awesome. So before we get into like your work and the things that you do, I just want to get to know a little bit about your early life. So where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Ottawa, our nation's capital, and I moved to Toronto in 2003. I just started Dinosaur Comics in February 2003, and at the end of that year, I moved to Toronto for grad school, and that took two and a half years, and I kept up Dinosaur Comics during that, and then I graduated, and you know, I sort of had this choice between getting a real job in what I studied, which was computational linguistics, which is a field of AI concerned with getting computers to speak natural languages like we're using right now. Okay. Or uh, be a cartoonist. And to be a cartoonist, all I had to do was fail to get a job, which is really easy. It was the easiest thing in the world. Right. And uh, after that, I was a full-time cartoonist. Cool. Scene missing brings us up to today. That's awesome. <laughs> so, like, were you into comics when you were a kid? I was. Uh, I lived in, a, I'd say I lived in Ottawa. I lived in a rural village called Osgood, about half an hour outside of Ottawa. And there was no comic book stores in Osgood. Okay. So I liked comics in the abstract sense of, you know, I liked a lot of things I didn't have access to. <laughs> I liked skateboarding. We had dirt roads, so you couldn't really do any skateboarding. So, and this was before the internet. I mean, I had news groups and Gopher and BBSs, but there wasn't really that sense of comics. There was no such thing as web comics then. Right. So... I just had general cultural knowledge of comics through, like, cartoon shows, movies, stuff like that. And I remember my first paycheck with my first job. I'd graduated high school, and I had this summer job. And I used I went to the local comic book store in Ottawa proper. Went down, worked in Ottawa. I went to the comic book store near where I worked. I walked in, and I just bought some comics. It's like, completely blind. I just bought stuff that looked cool. And I got three books. One of them was uh, Dark Knight Returns, which is a That's great amazing. comic. Good yeah. thing to pick up line. The other was... A book by uh, Alex Ross. Um, it's called Peace on Earth. Okay. I can't believe I'm blanking the writer's name. He's great. Look up Peace on Earth. Okay. The writer is one of my favorites. I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. Anyway, <laughs> it's almost a picture book of Superman being like, look, I'm Superman. 
Oh, I'm, was that one of the Jeff... Paul Dini. Paul Dini. Okay. Paul Dini, uh, okay. yes. Thank you for saying the wrong name, which triggered the yeah, right yeah, name yeah, in my yeah, mind. Yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> so it's Paul Dini, Alex Ross, and it's Superman saying, I'm Superman. I should be able to solve world hunger. Let's do it. Right. And he tries and doesn't work. But I thought it blew my mind that you could have a Superman story of him being like, I can punch planets. Why can't I solve world hunger? Uh, so that was really cool. I never, I never knew comics could do that. Right. And the third comic, I forget what it was. It wasn't very good. <laughs> Didn't get all winners. But that got me like instantly right back into comics. And after that, I spent all this money on just buying books at random. Like I was trying to catch up on, you know, 30 years of graphic storytelling. Mm-hmm. I just walked into the store and look at covers and buy stuff that I thought was good. And some were great, some were not. But I thought ones were great. I was like, this is this is amazing. This medium, you can do so much crazy stuff in it. I love it. So kind of a late bloomer in that respect. That's okay. So what made you walk into the comic book store? Like what appealed to you about comics? So, I mean, I didn't take any notes at the time, but in retrospect, okay. my theory, and this is a theory I think is true. Uh, my theory is that comics is the most innately fun printed storytelling medium. And to prove that you look at a book of prose, like a regular printed book, mm-hmm. hold that open next to a book of comics. <laughs> And like one of those is going to look more fun to read. And I know I shouldn't say reading is fun because librarians have spent 50 years telling us that reading is fun. And it is. But reading comics is funner. <laughs> like it's a more intrinsically fun thing to do. And this idea of fun, I think, is really appealing. I think that's what got me into the comic book store. And they can be scary places to go into. Less today, more then. But I, I got the sense, the first time I walked into a comic book store, of the sense I get today when I walk into a car repair store. Where I'm like, everyone here knows more than me. I look like an idiot. All you can do is point it and say it's not working. They're going to rip me off. I don't know what's happening. I'm so stressed. And that sense of walking to a comic store where you have this idea, this fear of this, you know, super hardcore comic book nerd who's going to say, in what issue did Superman first meet Crypto the Super Dog? And he'll be like, I don't know. And he'll be like, get out of there. You don't belong here. Like, it's... That's changing a lot. And I love their stores. Uh, Even in Toronto, Strange Adventures and the Beguiling, both these really accessible stories you can walk in and say i don't know anything about comics and they'll say well what do you like what shows do you like what movies do you like and we can tell you stuff that's in that similar vein so you'll find something in the same uh in this medium that you like in that other medium Mm -hmm. which i think is great like my whole thing with comics that i'm happy to see happen more and more is people realizing it's a medium not a genre you can tell different types of stories in it and i mean i'm a guy who tells superhero stories with squirrel girl but you don't have to tell just superhero stories. Like you can tell any sort of stories. Like you can tell any sort of stories in comics or rather in, in books or movies or anything else. Like it's, it's a medium, not a genre. And the more that gets larger cultural knowledge and the better we all are. Nice. So when you went to school and you were like deciding what you wanted to do for school and stuff, what got you into like, like computer science and like, Oh, I liked it and I was good at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing with computer science is, and this, again, is more true today than it ever was. But it is a... We live in a world that is becoming increasingly computerized. And I feel like just for, like, basic being a good citizen of society, you should know how computers work. You should be able to program computers to do tasks for you. Right. And, uh, I mean, I, I went to the master's level of studying computers, which is not necessary. But mm-hmm. even just being able to program small little apps to solve your problems is great. Like, I, I see... You know, I have a 10 gigabyte file of old historical sales data that I need to retroactively figure out what the GST was on Canadian companies only. How are you going to do that? You you can mess with Excel for a long time, which is basically programming Excel, or you just write like a quick half hour program to parse that and spit out the numbers. So when you were in high school, were you like one of those people that was like ahead of 
the curve in terms of computers? Like, were you one of like the oh, yeah, people well, who were like, <laughs> like he's going to be the future? No, like, I mean, outside of the curve in that, I mean, this is, I'm 36 right. now. And so this is years ago, but our computers class, the typing class, we learned on actual typewriters, okay, which was old even then. Like that was retro even then. We were right. amazed. Computer class, I remember high school computer class, the one one we had, we were programming in Pascal, which was fun, but we did a unit on C and we had this sort of teach yourself C program the teacher was using. Mm-hmm. And we discovered the first day that she, the plan was she would grade us on what the program said we did. So you'd have a, the program would give you a test, you would answer the test, and then she'd see what the answers was and give you a grade based off that. On the first day we discovered you could, there was a button that said skip test. <laughs> and if you skip test, it would give you 100% on the test. Wow. And it was indistinguishable from the actual result. And so we told her this and she was like, well, you get out of this course what you put into it. <laughs> so it was <laughs> like such, it, I mean, they're struggling too. Like we had uh, another teacher for the same class who was reading one page ahead of the class in a teach yourself Pascal programming book. And so he could teach the class we were doing. We had any questions. He couldn't answer them because he didn't know what the answers were yet. So we were, I was ahead of the class in that sense, but so were most of the students oh, because okay. we were what you'd now call digital natives and that was new and exciting. Right. And you made, I guess you made Doreen Green Squirrel Girl a computer science student just because that was something you knew or? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was part of it. It's it's easier for me to write. Right. I, 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 early on, she's going to be a CS student. Then I thought for a day that she'd be an English major instead because it would be harder for me to write. Right. And my wife was like, what are you doing? It's so much better if she's a CS student because this is true. Like there's, there's this idea in STEM fields of science, technology, engineering, and math where it's something boys do and girls don't do it. And because of that, like my first year in, in undergrad, computer science program, class of 200, there were two women in the class, wow. which is ludicrous, right? Like that's crazy. So even just for the value of representation of saying, yes, you can be a computer science major and a woman at the same time is actually not that big a deal. This right. is something that's completely normal and should be normal. Uh, making her a CS student, I thought was fun and good in that way. Well, and in terms of that same like broadening of like the audience and like including both genders and professions and that sort of thing, Squirrel Girl is kind of responsible, for, like not really responsible, like wholly, but but it is one of those comics that I, women that I know sort of point to as like a little more diverse and a little more well-rounded in terms of in terms of the gender, the yeah. way that you handle gender and that sort of thing. Yeah, we try to be progressive. Mm-hmm. So is that was that like that was obviously like a, con- a conscious choice that you wanted to do? You wanted to like reflect the world? Yeah, I think representation is important. And I feel that we're starting with Doreen Green was already a young white woman. Mm-hmm. And so filling out her supporting cast, I was like, well, let's let's make that a bit more diverse because we can. Like, if you're going to invent new characters in this, the year of our Lord, 2016, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like it's a good idea to make them all, you know, straight white guys, straight mm-hmm. cis white guys. Like, we can you can do something more interesting. And it came out at a time when, well, and we're living in that time, where, like, people were, like, more aware of that sort of thing. And the conversations seemed to happen. Like, people seem to be more sensitive to diversity issues and yeah. representational I mean, issues and that sort of thing. I think we all are. I'm, yeah. I know... I'd like to say that 20 years ago when I was a kid in Osgoode Public uh, Elementary School that I was also aware of these diversity issues, but I wasn't. I mean, it takes time to 
you're always learning about the world around you and you're always trying to figure out uh, better ways to be a person inside that world. For sure. So, I mean, I want to go back to that whole like decision between computer science and comics. Mm -hmm. What made you want to pursue comics as a, as a writer? Because we all know from Dinosaur Comics that you that you can't draw, and that's sort of part of the gag. Yeah. So what made you go from what a parent would call a respectable profession to, <laughs> to, to comics? My parents did call it a respectable profession. And I, I told them when I was yeah. graduating, becoming a cartoonist, my dad was like, what are you doing? You're throwing away your education. Like right. You spent all these years, all these years getting educated. You have a master's degree in computer science, and you're going to do internet comics about talking dinosaurs. And I was like, yes, but stay with me. It's going to be great. The nice thing about doing them both is that they use different parts of your mind. I remember when I was in uh, high school trying to pick my major and I was leaning towards computer science or humanities, English. My dad said, look, you just want to go into humanities because a girl you like is also going into humanities. And I was like, no, that's not it. I also like writing, <laughs> which was true. The, what, what brought me to computers in the first place was, you know, I felt like I could study computers and write in my spare time more effectively than I could study writing and do computer science in my spare time. Mm. Uh, I just realized now, like, that totally worked out. I can't, I do do them both. Like, I ended up doing a lot of writing in my spare time. It became a career. It was less of a conflict between, like, science and art, more of a conflict of what I want to do. I want to do them both. Mm -hmm. I feel like they're both entertaining. There's interesting things in both of them. They're both creative acts. Like, writing a story is as creative as writing a computer program. They're just in different ways. And the nice thing I've had for years is that if I get stuck on a story where I don't know what needs to happen next, I'm just banging my head against a wall. It's such a relief to switch to computer programming where you know the goal you're trying to accomplish. And there's different ways you can accomplish it, but you know what the end point is and you can explore it in that way. And then when you get stuck computer programming, you're tired of like syntax errors or fighting a compiler and you switch over to creative writing where you can do whatever you want. There are no rules. It's a neat thing you can get where doing one feels like taking a break from the other which means your breaks now become super productive because you're not just sitting around watching TV. You're actually like doing something. What was it that made you want to try writing in the first place as a career? Was it, was it that you were getting more into comics or? As it was less of wanting to try writing as wanting to write comics, which is where Dinosaur Comics comes okay. from. I, I was reading a bunch of comics and wanted to write them and couldn't draw. Mm. And so they do have a comic where the pictures change. Pictures never change and the words do is the way I got around that. And... I mean, Dinosaur, Dinosaur Comics was all I wrote for years. Right. For, I think, maybe five... Was it that long? Several years, at least. And then I started writing another comic, which is Whispered Apologies, which was a comic where people would send in blank art. Art without word balloons. Or art with blank word balloons, rather, and I'd fill in the word balloons. Mm -hmm. Which is, again, getting around that restriction. Right. And it was only until... It was almost a decade of just doing that before I started writing other stuff. I'm like, wait, I could... I've I'd learned how to write. Now I can write some other stuff. Like I started writing, I wrote To Be or Not To Be, which was the choose your own path version of Hamlet, mm -hmm. which then led to Romeo and or Juliet, which is the choose your own path version of Romeo and Juliet, obviously. Started doing Adventure Time comics, which led to Squirrel Girl, which led to all this other stuff. But it all comes from wanting to write comics in 2003 and not knowing how to draw. Let's examine that question a little bit. So that's sort of a daunting a daunting thing like not everybody is going to have the mind to be able to like get around that problem was it paralyzing at first or did you always know that you were going to figure this out because you <laughs> really wanted to write comics yeah i mean the hilarious thing is that i didn't realize that comics writer was a job i thought everyone wrote and drew their own stuff okay yeah <laughs> so i'm like oh, i gotta do them both i can't do half the job what i'm gonna do 
And the actually, the first idea I had was a, a comic where it was always the same story with different pictures. She'd tell it different ways. Mm. And that's the exact wrong idea for me to be exploring. But I realized if I flipped that, I might be able to do some comics. Many years later, there was a book that came out called 99 Ways to Tell a Story that is that idea. The same story told 99 different ways. And I was like, yes, that was my idea. I never told anyone. Like, you retroactively stole my idea, my secret idea. Like, you didn't actually steal it. But no. uh, you did it in a way that I couldn't realize. And it's so nice to see an idea that you had that you couldn't follow through, get followed through in a really well-done way. Nice. So once you decided that you were going to do dinosaur comics... Mm-hmm. Was the fact that it was dinosaur comics like simply like those were the pictures that you could find? Like, how did you decide yeah. what pictures you were going to use, what order they were going to be in, and how this was going to happen? Yeah, no, it is uh, what I had access. All I had to draw with was this really old clip art program I had from 1997. And it had these poseable dinosaur images so you could move their arms and legs and mouths and jaws and stuff. I thought, all right, I can. I'll do dinosaur comics for a month, and then next month I'll do astronaut comics because I had astronauts. And uh, the first month went by, and I was like, "Man, making new art's a lot of work." <laughs> Stay with the dinosaurs for a bit longer. Now it's thirteen years later, mm-hmm. but if you look at the layout of dinosaur comics, uh, that is, you know, just about the first comic I ever made. And there's all these mistakes in it. Like they're the bottom three panels, the characters are standing on the panel boundary, which is like complete amateur hour. <laughs> The T-Rex is basically eight stories tall, which is how tall I thought dinosaurs were in 2003. They're mm. not that big. They're big, but they're not eight stories tall big. That's Godzilla level height. Um, there's there's stuff that I would change now, but I've had it for so long. And it's there, there's stuff that no one else really cares about. But it just shows like this was the work of someone who was starting out in comics. Right. And you made very specific choices of like, I'm going to have the foot over the woman Mm -hmm. and there's going to be a house and Mm -hmm. like, that's always going to be a thing. So, and they're going to be like super large, like way larger than the house. So like once, like how did you decide, okay, this is what the picture is going to be for this panel. And every, like, I mean, there wasn't really much of a thought process to it. I just laid down the dinosaurs in a way I thought was interesting. Right. Uh, I remember I did three panels and I was like, that seems pretty short. I'll do six panels. (laughs) I'll do another row of panels. And then I finished that. I'm like, eh, nine seems like too much. I'll I'll keep with my six panels. But this was just, it was something I dashed off in maybe an hour playing with this software. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if you want to, Look at it, that that hour I made that layout is the most important, creatively important, important hour of my life because it sets the rest of the next 20 years in motion, just about. And you were trying to make it funny, sort of. Yeah, well, I was gonna, always going to be a comedy comic. Yeah. But this is only, I thought if I did too much physical comedy, you know, that joke's going to get stale after you see that same image for a thousand times. So it's it's a very flexible layout, which happened almost by accident. You can tell different stories. And the thing that I learned, that took me a while to learn, but that I did eventually learn, is that comics itself is a very flexible medium. So you have six panels. It's telling a visual story of this T-Rex walking around. He steps in the house, steps in a woman, talks to you, Traptor. He's left alone in the last panel. That tells a, a visual story. Mm-hmm. But if you put the words, you know, meanwhile in a parallel universe about panel three, the visual story of that strip changes entirely mm-hmm. because now something new is happening in panel three. And you're in a whole new different story space. So, you can do a lot. I mean, if anything Dinosaur Comics shows us, is that you can do a lot with six panels. Right. <laughs> and it's, a, it's incredibly flexible, the kinds of stories you can tell by just putting words on top of pictures. Well, and the versatility is so much that, like, I think it takes a while for people to realize that it's 
they're the same picture. Oh, I love when that happens. Yeah. I, love it. I, love it. I feel like it's the greatest compliment. Um, my favorite story of that is my friend uh, was reading. She had a job at a grocery store and they had a, an, a break room with a shared computer. And so she'd read my comic on break every day at lunch. And after a week, uh, her boss was like, listen, we're all wondering, uh, why do you read the same comic at lunch every day? And why do you keep laughing at it? Because <laughs> they're just seeing it from a distance. We thought it was the same images meant it was the same comic right. but yeah i'll get emails from people saying hey i feel stupid i read you know six comics where i realized it was the same pictures i'm like no that's great that's great that means it works on its own even without the aesthetic gimmick i baked into the project nice so when you're coming up with your next script uh how do you figure out what story you you want to tell because some of the like some of the humor is very like cerebral and like intellectual and that sort of thing that's me so <laughs> how do you how do you figure out like what's gonna be the next dinosaur comic i mean i just start writing and i've got files tons and tons of text files that are just abandoned comics where i started writing and i realized this was bad and a mistake and i need <laughs> to stop it i'm when i'm writing a comic i'm writing something that is there to make me laugh because that's how I know that I think a joke is funny is that I actually laugh at it, which means I only ever write alone where no one's around because it's so embarrassing to be seen laughing at your own jokes. Especially <laughs> when you're writing to me like, ho, 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 yeah. I am very funny. Good work, typewriter. So uh, the process of writing dinosaur comics is really the process of exploring an idea in a way that I'm trying to make myself laugh. And hopefully other people will find it funny too. Mm -hmm. And when you started them in 2003, I mean web comics were like barely a thing oh, different world entirely. Yeah. no twitter no facebook so, no YouTube. so let me know like how did you build an audience because oh, it obviously yeah. got popular enough for you to do other things real slowly real sl i mean no okay. one should do it no one can do i guess you still could but no one should do what i did because i was working in 2003 so i'll tell you what i did i posted on some news groups i told my family about it i made some cutout dinosaurs that i stuck around carlton university campus <laughs> and that was about it and you know for the first two years for the first couple months was me and my mom reading my comic and then my mom stopped <laughs> and it was really two years before i had any audience we're speaking of and the value of that is that you you have to, any creative work i feel like you have to be doing it for yourself you can't be doing it for an audience because that audience can be fickle or might not show up and if i've been doing it because i wanted people to send me nice emails i would have stopped six months in because i wasn't getting those nice emails right try to launch a comic now i mean you do different stuff you post about it on twitter and on facebook and you build an audience and you can very you can with uh direction build an audience intentionally where i had more of a put on the internet put on the internet and see what happens point of view mm -hmm. so don't do what i did it took forever right right and was it sort of suddenly realizing that people were reading it i remember there's one year where in september uh, the traffic almost doubled and I never know what, why that was. I maybe there's just some fan on campus who really liked my comic and spread it around. It was really just a matter of getting different emails from people. And that was gradually increasing, uh, until you reach a point where you have too many emails <laughs> and then you go, Oh no, I have a problem that is the most unsympathetic problem in the universe because you can't go up to someone and say, I have this problem where I have too much fan mail. And they go, oh, boo-hoo, life is so hard. But it was, there were years where, like, I would take Sunday, my whole Sunday, and just write back to people. I eventually had to stop because it, just, it took too much time. Right. So I still read everything, and I reply whenever I can. But I still have this problem where something's really great. 
I'll be like, that deserves more than a quick response. I'll reply to it later. And then I never actually go back and reply yeah. to it, which is, I think, yeah. a lot of people have. And then meanwhile, you're, you just moved to Toronto when you started, right? Mm-hmm. And so are you like working full time? Like what's going on in your regular life? I was a full time student okay. uh, at that point. I mean, I, I was a full time student on paper. I was also doing comics. So I was not technically a full time student. And I'm, I'm doing dancer comics meant I was not the greatest grad student in the world because I had split my attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, my supervisor ended up being a fan of the comics, which was great. But uh, when I finished the master's, I decided not to do PhD because they're a lot of work. <laughs> and also, I already had this comics thing going on. I thought that would be more fun to explore. What was your master's thesis in? Uh, so it was computational linguistics. The specific field was a type of construction called light verb constructions. Things like uh, take a walk, give a smile, where you have two verbs taken walk or give and smile okay and the semantics and meaning of that phrase seems to come from both of them and we are looking at class-based productivity of those expressions so you can take a walk you can take a stroll uh are there other sorts of movement verbs that you can take and you can give a smile are there other sorts of expression verbs you can give and worked on that for two years took the state of the art from i think 60 percent precision and recall up to maybe 85 which is pretty good and it is it's a realization of that old joke where the more you learn about the more higher education you do, the more you learn about a very, very small subject. Right. So light verb expressions, I'm your guy. And expressions, they started out as something that would confuse like artificial intelligence because the meaning comes from Uh, less confusion and more like if we're trying to generate speech or understand speech, it would help to know what, what we're dealing with. Okay. And if you have a computer is trying to sound natural and it says, let's take a cavort. You're like, that doesn't sound right. That's weird. You shouldn't say that, computer. I mean, these are these are small parts of a larger problem that is yet unsolved. Right. Uh, entirely. But it's a problem that in the 70s, you try to solve with... In the 60s, you try to solve with rules. In the 70s, there's more statistics. And lately, it's big data where we say, well, let's just throw a bunch of... Let's throw the internet at this problem, which is tons of language, tons of text you can scan. Mm-hmm. And instead of trying to be as clever as we were trying to be with statistical modeling in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, let's be a bit simpler with just a huge amount of data to search through. And that works too. Like, it's it's really cool field. Cool. So is it thrilling for you when you see, like, AI defeating people on Jeopardy? And, like... Yeah, that was fun. Um, I remember when I was watching that, there was a mistake that Watson had made. And I was like, I know why you made that mistake. I see where you're going with this. It was a wrong path. Um, but Watson was always going to win. The way Watson wouldn't win is if they had like trouble recognizing the speech mm-hmm. like this is a knowledge engine that they become super powerful cool so like maybe you can answer this question i mean do you think like as a person who's sort of in this field that we should like fear the singularity oh gosh i don't know maybe <laughs> it's hard to predict <laughs> <laughs> okay uh i think it's interesting with what we're seeing with the coming of self-driving cars and other autonomous things like that in the way they're going to affect the human economy because uh, things like the the last one of the last jobs you can get that gives you a middle class income without university education is truck driving and that job is definitely going away within 10 years right self-driving trucks will be cheaper there isn't any point in history we can point to where someone's come up with a cheap way to do things and they said no this will negatively affect the workers i employ let's not do it like these self-driving trucks are coming and when they do, that's going to change the economy in uh, a way that 
is probably unprecedented. Aren't they already kind of here? They, they are already kind of here. There's self-driving trucks on the road. There's a driver behind the wheel to monitor them and they're running tests and stuff. But I would not be surprised if within a decade uh, there were just trucks without people inside them delivering things. Yeah. When you have trucks, you can have cars. And that changes a lot of the stuff. As a person with a disability uh, and a journalist, I sometimes write articles that are selfish like they're just for my own information mm-hmm. and one of those things was on <clears> self-driving <throat> cars and whether i had to learn to drive because self-driving cars yeah. were coming and i was very disappointed to learn that uh for a while you're gonna have to have like somebody who can drive to drive that's transitional yeah that's people saying we don't trust these cars we need a person on the wheel to take over in case something goes wrong mm-hmm. i can't see that lasting for that long because especially for trucks where there's a financial incentive not to have someone behind the wheel. It's very expensive to pay someone to sit there and do nothing. Right. And it's much easier to get rid of that person or to merge moving product with moving people and say, oh, this is a bus that also will drop off all the stuff. There's so much stuff that can change when you have a vehicle that can drive itself. Awesome. I think it's going to be really cool. Yeah. So one of the things in Dinosaur Comics that has sort of continued in the work that you're doing now is like dinosaur comics. You always sort of have the like one line of commentary that gives a little bit of context the or text. Yeah. It was, yeah. It's like on the bottom of the page, like outside of the panels. And that sort of continued with squirrel girl. Yep. Why do you keep doing that? What's so appealing about this? So it started in web comics as sort of a secondary punchline. You hold your mouse over the image and you see another joke. And with Dinosaur Comics, you also, the contact link has another joke. And the archive text is another joke. So I cram these extra jokes. With Squirrel Girl, the idea was, uh, I think we can all agree that comics is a not inexpensive hobby. And I really like the idea of us literally cramming jokes into the margins so you get your money's worth. And uh, it makes the comic feel a bit special, I think, because it's doing stuff that other comics aren't. And from a writer perspective, it lets me handle some problems in an elegant way, I think. So... Maybe I want to use this character and there's some backstory you need to know, but I don't want to have the characters say like, as you know, Squirrel Girl, recently, this is what's been going on with me. I can put that in a joke format under the page and just drop the knowledge there. It's not important. You need to know it right away, but it's there for when you need it. And you're sort of progressing a staple of comics, which was the sort of editor commentary like Mm -hmm. the last issue you know you'll remember blah 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 and you're sort of elevating that a little bit like Like you're taking it to the next to the next uh place maybe yeah i think it's i think it's interesting i what i like about it is it lets me comment on the work as i write it which Mm -hmm. is kind of i guess postmodern sort of filling in with the dvd commentary style of here's people involved in creating this work of art and this is them talking about it afterwards you know i'm talking about it at the same time Mm mm-hmm um, there's, I think there's a lot of neat stuff you can do with it and I'd like to see it be used more like outside of stuff that I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. Like if somebody just took the ball and yeah, and ran, yeah. And ran this is it. me giving permission. It's not my thing. You can use it too. Right. I want to see what you do. Cool. And what I like about what you do too is like, there's sort of, there used to be like a little bit of a fear, like when you did stuff like that, when you put stuff in the margins, that you had to put like a star next to what you were referring mm-hmm. to so people knew to look there. Yeah. And you don't do that. You just, that's no, just like, a thing. I like the idea of it as a surprise where there's a couple people where you could pick up the book, read it, get the next issue, read it, 
maybe even get three issues in before you notice there's text at the bottom of the page. And then you go back, the text has been there the whole time. And this book, which you thought was a static object, now has new content for you that you didn't see before. Right. Like that idea of a text that can surprise you down the road, I think is fun. I get emails from people who say, hey, I just want to email you and say, I read all your dinosaur comics. I read 13 years of your comics. They were great. I loved them. And then I clicked on the contact link and I saw it automatically filled out the email subject line with a joke. And now I've realized there are 13 years of jokes I've missed <laughs> and I feel really bad. I'm like, no, don't feel bad. Feel like if you ever choose to reread it, there's an extra thing new for you there. But absolutely do not reread 13 years of comics just to get that little chuckle prompt in the subject line. It's not worth it, but it'll be there for you in the future. Right. Exactly. Meanwhile, elsewhere on the internet... Oh, your wife is unhappy that you shop and see Harry Tarantula. Yes. Do you buy anything for her there? Uh, no. Then I suggest next time you add this Harry Tarantula, you buy a book for the little lady. Like Sandman, for example. Doc, she'd love that. You're a genius, man. Thank you. $5,000, please. What? How can I afford anything now? Well, if you are depressed, I can prescribe some happy pills. Huh? I suggest the pink ones. Harry Tarantula, 354 Young. Upstairs, downtown. Online at HAIRYT.com. Here's some free examples for your life. Welcome back. And now, more speech bubble. So, how did you get busier? I mean, I mean, the first thing that I read of your stuff and I didn't realize that I was reading it mm-hmm. was the anthology that you did on like the death the death machine, machine of death. the machine yeah. of death and so did books come out of dinosaur comics first or did comics come or uh, how did you get did. more mainstream books actually um machine death comes from a dinosaur comic I wrote in 2005 about a machine that can tell you how you're going to die from a blood test and people in this forum we had were like that's fun let's put together a book so I did short stories and put together this book I'm like you know what this is good let's see if someone will actually publish it for us and then we spend years going to publishers and they'd say, we like it, but maybe actually no, uh, we like it, but it's science fiction. It's an anthology. There's no big names. You're all three strikes. You're out. And so eventually we just published it ourselves. And uh, the day we published it, it became amazon.com's bestselling book, which was like bestselling book on the site, which was great. Wow. Cause it turns out we had built up demand for this book for the past five years <laughs> trying to get mm. it out. And that was the first sort of spinoff from Dinosaur Comics, where this was an idea in a comic, and now it's a real thing you can buy. And later on, I wrote a comic uh, with Boom called The Midas Flash, which was like, let's take the myth of King Midas and treat it as scientifically as we can. In which case, this guy's body is a super weapon that can turn entire planets to gold. This is so dangerous. And that, again, was a short story that T-Rex had written in comics years ago. Sometimes I have T-Rex describe an idea and it's just to save me the time of actually doing it. Right. And sometimes I go back and be like, that was actually a good idea. I think I'm going to flesh this out some. That's awesome. Yeah. From Dinosaur Comics, like, you write, like, I guess what people would consider, like, humor comics. So did, did <laughs> I you, hope so. I'm did trying, you, to, did, trying did, to put did jokes you, in there. Did you start getting pegged as sort of the funny guy and that's how you got, like, Adventure Time and those sorts of those sorts of things? Or... How did those uh, come to you? Adventure Time's interesting because I had spent 10 years doing dinosaur comics at that point. I thought I was telling funny talking dinosaur jokes on the internet. What I didn't realize was that the comic actually functioned as this really long form, hopefully entertaining visual resume. Because the email I got from Shannon Waters, who's my editor in Adventure Time, was like, Hey, I'm Shannon. I'm doing this Adventure Time book. We need a writer. I've read dinosaur comics since I was in high school. And do you want to write it? And that was her recognizing that, oh, this guy, you know, has a sensibility that will fit the show, that will fit the book. He 
can meet a deadline, especially a self-imposed deadline, which are the hardest ones to meet. He hopefully knows his way around a joke. And uh, all of that just led to me getting an email that all I do is write back and say yes. And now I have this job writing Adventure Time. <laughs> right. Because she was reading your comic. Because she was reading Dinosaur Comics when she was younger. Yeah. yeah. So again, like Adventure Time comes from Dinosaur Comics in the fact that it was what got the attention of the editor mm-hmm. on the book. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's, it's cool. So, and the book... Adventure Time, like you're not on it anymore, but... Now I wrote the first 35 issues, and now Chris Hastings is writing more of them. Right. He's also a friend. But it it is going to end, I, I heard, so... Yeah, the show's ending. Yeah, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I haven't seen uh, the last episodes, because I haven't been boarded yet, or even released. Not, it's not going to be actually ending no. until like 2018, I think, right, 2017, right. they the made the announcement. Yeah, I don't know. You want, you want things to last forever that you like, mm-hmm. but you also want to have a good ending. Mm-hmm. And I think it's good when you can have an ending you control. In the 80s, you know, all the cartoons would just stop and there'd never be a conclusion. Or like, even like Quantum Leap, never he never leaves home. He's always leaving the next one because they never had a conclusion. Right. Which, you know, kind of works. But also, you want you want a big conclusion. You want a finale to your story. Well, and sometimes like pilots are built on the premise that there will be... A conclusion. Yeah, at some and point. end of the story. Especially when you, when you switch to more season long arcs or series long arcs, like you want to know how it ends. Midas Flesh was an eight issue miniseries and was always going to be an eight issue miniseries because I had an ending for it. When an ending works really well, it's great. Like you've, it elevates the entire story you've been reading. So I'm not against Adventure Time having an ending. Were you a fan of the show before you started? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's the reason I took a job. Yeah. Only reason. Uh, because I used to read Star Trek tie novels when I was a kid. And when they made mistakes, I'd be like, ah, oh, this is wrong. The person isn't as big a fan as I was. And so I'd never do a licensed work if I wasn't a huge fan of the show because I, and you need to have that, that fan knowledge, that inside big knowledge of the, the universe. Right. And I didn't want to screw it up. So it was only that I was already a fan, already loving the show, had loved it since the YouTube pilot years ago, that gave me the confidence that, yeah, I could, I could write this. Nice. Cool. So... For Squirrel Girl, did that come from Adventure Time? And, like, what was your pitch for Squirrel Girl? Did you have a... Yeah, so that was... My editor there, Will Moss, uh, had read Adventure Time. And he was like, I should keep an eye on this Ryan guy. And then when he had uh, Squirrel Girl come up, he uh, sent me an email saying, Hey, give me give me a pitch. What would your Squirrel Girl look like? And I was like, Squirrel Girl? I don't know who this character is. Like, I knew of her just, like... A girl with squirrel powers. I think, like, mostly yeah. everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So, I took the weekend. I read all I could about her. And at the end of the weekend, uh, I knew that I really wanted there to be a squirrel girl comic. And I really wanted to be the guy writing it. And so, I sent him this pitch that was saying, look, it's going to be this all-ages uh, accessible comic where you don't have to have an encyclopedic knowledge of the Marvel Universe to read it. And it's going to be fun and funny. And it's going to be great. And I wanted to fight Galactus in the first arc. Let's do it. And the secret there about making it this accessible you don't need all this in Marvel history to enjoy it, is that I didn't have that encyclopedic Marvel knowledge to, to, to dig from. I knew a bit of it, but not, not a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I pitched a book I could write, right. <laughs> which is very sneaky and it worked out. Right. Do you ever run into problems related to not having that encyclopedic knowledge where they go, we can't do that because No, no I've read a lot more now. Okay. Um, if you look at the the villain she fights in the first four issues, with the exception of Craven, they've all been in Marvel movies. Right. Because I'd seen the movies. Like yeah. I had I had that level. I knew the people. I knew the characters are. But I don't know what Spider-Man was doing in 1973. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a better idea now what he was doing in 1973. When you first were reading about Squirrel Girl, like a character that you'd sort of mm-hmm. vaguely heard of, 
what is it that appealed to you about her? What I liked about Squirrel Girl as I got her was that uh, here was a character who was beating up these really powerful like she's punching out of her class level it seems like she's out of her she's got squirrel powers but she's defeated thanos and how does this happen and usually those victories were shown off panel where you they start the fight you cut away to meanwhile in kansas you come back and thanos is on the ground defeated and the watcher is there saying this is definitely thanos and this definitely happened and so for me i was like well that that's great uh you can't build a book around that because after the third cutaway gag, people are going to be upset. Like, show me how she beats him. So the fun for the writers, how do you, how do you show this woman with squirrel powers actually achieving these victories? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is great. Like, I, I love thinking of puzzles that way. And my first draft of the first issue, she uh, defeated Craven. In the final issue, she she matches different ways to beat him, one of which is, like, stuffing squirrels down his pants and stuff. In the first draft, that's what she did. She stuffed squirrels down his pants. And my editor was like, this is great, but... I always saw Squirrel Girl as kind of person who who helps people with their problems a bit more. And that was like reading the back of the teacher's answer key. I was like, wait, this is great. Delete that draft. Give me a day. I got something better for you. In the final draft, she talks to Craven and realizes his problems and sets him on a better course in his life. And like actually is empathetic to what the villains are trying to accomplish. And what I love about that is like she's, she's someone who will have a conversation before getting into a fist fight, which is also how I solve my own problems. I don't get into too many fist fights these days. And the exciting thing in a superhero context is that it doesn't happen that often. Like someone who will say, wait, no, I see what you're, I see where you're coming from here. Right. It's almost revolutionary in a, in a superhero context. It is. And so it's a lot of fun to write a character like that who exists in this Marvel universe of crazy stuff happening all the time. Mm-hmm. But it's also like, you know, we don't have to fight about this. <laughs> and you also like it's it's revolutionary in terms of the way comic problems are usually solved in superhero mm-hmm. comics but then it's also doing a double job of like you take a character that clearly was a joke character because they didn't show how she defeated the villain really it was sort of like a throwaway mm-hmm. and you're making her be taken more seriously yeah i read someone who was saying the difference is that in the previous iteration squirrel girl was the joke and you laughed at her and in the new iteration in our version uh, you're laughing with her and i was like i can see that like she's I, I i don't think she's a joke and i don't write her as a joke and i don't think people in our universe think of her as a joke uh she's this legitimate human being who lives there and has these cool powers that she really works well with like she does this, this cool stuff right and you're sort of I, I don't know if this is accidentally on purpose that's a, pr- a good question but you're sort of mimicking how comics are seen now like comics are being taken more seriously just because of the movies and and and, oh, and that sort of thing so yeah i hadn't uh, thought of that you know like people that read comics used to be treated as sort of a joke sort of a joke yeah now they're like the major now, social uh, right. box office draw <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's it's weird that it's like paralleling the fan journey over, yeah, over time. I didn't realize that. I'll take the credit for that. It's super <laughs> not intentional, but I'll take it. <laughs> for for Squirrel Girl, like, you started it, but then you had to sort of restart it, right? Because there was, like, a new number one. Is that frustrating for comic book writers, or...? Uh, the only frustration I had with that was I was worried about people who are new to comics having to explain how there's two number ones in the same year. Okay. Because... If you walk in and say, I want Squirrel Girl number one, person say, which number one? And you're like, I don't know. I'm new here. What What's going on? <laughs> uh, but it's, for us, we just, everyone got a new number one across the entire Marvel line. We just had a new number one, but continued the same story we we're already telling. Right. So it wasn't a big break for us. Nice. 
as a comedy comic person, do you ever feel pressure to be funny? Like people want you to be funny all the time. You mean like in real life? Yeah, like or when you go to like conventions or that sort of thing. Um, Are people like, hey, be fun? Like, yeah, but also like they're they're there because they like you, right? And so any comedian can tell you a sympathetic sympathetic audience is great. Like they're Mm -hmm. already on your side, Mm -hmm. and so uh, during panel stuff, like I, I try to be entertaining be funny right and i've never bombed which is nice because they the people are very they're there to have a good time right instead of sitting there with their arms crossed being like oh what's this guy gonna say i don't think i'm gonna laugh like they're there to have fun but comedy is hard like comedy is hard to write i always yeah. like i'm a writer too and it's it's difficult to try and make something funny well, it, it how, do you, it how do you tackle that so i sort of hinted this before but writing alone where i'm trying to make myself laugh like that is my canary in the coal mine where i know something is funny when i laugh at it and that's i think what makes comedy easier than other genres is that your body tells you when you're doing it right right like you have this thing that goes off that tells you that works and so that the trick is that you can't say something is objectively funny you can just say that you found it funny Mm -hmm. and so you're trying to write for someone who shares your sense of humor hopefully like if it made you laugh hopefully it makes someone else laugh it's funny i did an interview with uh, my old uh, carlton university college newspaper once and I said something like, I'm trying to write for anyone who shares my sense of humor. And they printed that as, I'm trying to write for anyone who has a sense of humor, which is way more <laughs> egotistical thing to be saying. I was like, oh, geez. Now I'm Carl thinks I'm a dick. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. So so what is what is the future hold for you? Like, what else do you want to do that you're not doing? Uh, oh, where is computer science now that you're, like, knee-deep in the comics thing? It's still there. I've when I was doing dinosaur comics, I started a uh, advertising network that doesn't suck called Project Wonderful, which was me doing computer science. So I wanted to have have ads on my site that weren't going to be horrible pop ups, just like a nice banner ad. And so I programmed, built this network that did that, and that's still running. I'm still running it, and that's something that sort of scratches that computer science itch. Nice. Uh, in terms of writing. So someone asked me, like, what's, who's a Marvel character you'd love to write? I'm like, I feel like I already have it. Like, I've got Doreen Green, and she's so great. And they were like, yeah, but what about, like, Spider-Man? And I was like, well, I can I can make Spider-Man guest star in Squirrel Girl, no problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, can bring in the, you get to play in the Marvel Universe, you get to have the characters you want show up. And so it feels like I've got this really sweet gig right now that I don't want to change. And it's weird that somebody would, like... And I think people approach comics a certain way where it's like everybody wants to write like the marquee people they must like there's a there's a yeah, there's, idea that there's you, an assumption right? yeah and it's i don't think it's true like <laughs> i'm very happy writing squirrel girl right and in terms of other writing like writing uh, to be or not to be in romeo and or juliet were both me writing a prose book but working comics you know all these cartoonists and so i could be like hey you're a great illustrator I've got a hundred endings in the book. Do you want to illustrate one of the endings? Right. Um, which I thought was a lot of fun because it made the book into the sort of art object at the end with a lot of these cool pictures. And when I was going to elementary school, like choose your own adventure books were like the only books that I would read in like the school library. Like you're sort of bringing back this genre. Like, I don't know if, if you're the only one doing it. There's but, not like, a lot. There's not a lot. So. Especially for an, a non-juvenile audience. Like, right. These books are usually written for kids. Right. And uh, I was like, well, let's, not write them. I don't want to say for adults because that makes them sound like they're sexy books and they're not that sexy books. <laughs> like they're Shakespeare. So there's some kissing and stuff, but it's mostly murder. Um, but I'm writing it for uh, a wide audience, not just kids. And there's not a lot of books written for a wide audience, including adults that start with like 
you are this person. What do you want to do next? Turn to page three to find out. <laughs> That's just not, doesn't happen. Right. And it's fun that you get to explore medium that people aren't, aren't exploiting to its full potential. Did you read them back when you were? Oh, I love them. Yeah, I, I read yeah. a lot. I read tons. That's awesome. And it's also, it's like, and or, which in today's society is pretty progressive. Like the people might interpret that as like, like a gender thing, like, like Ro- Romeo and or oh, sure, yeah. you can pick who you want to be and that, yep. sort, and that sort of thing. Yep. So uh, I guess, are there, are there wider implications of that or are you just, this is what I did and this is how people are going to, are going to see it in terms of like, like you can be whoever you want with like Romeo, Ju- Romeo and or Juliet. Mm-hmm. But then people might be like, Oh, Romeo and or like, that's pretty progressive because, you know, if you're a guy, you can be the girl. If you're a girl, you can be the oh, guy. Yeah, I mean, I would, you can do whatever you want kind of thing. I would hope that's not progressive even. Like, I, I feel right. like the idea that boys can only play boy characters. Right. I mean, that idea is still there. Like, you hear people It is, because the media would yeah, write or, an article about that kind of thing. I remember like, someone telling me that uh, some boys in their class were like, oh, I can't read Squirrel Girl. That's a girl comic. Mm-hmm. It's like, no. you. I have a friend who writes young adult books, and she was traveling around these schools doing talks. And at one of the schools, this little boy was waiting behind till everyone left because he wanted to get his book signs. He didn't want to see his friends seeing him get this book signed because it was a girl book written by a girl. And like that idea is so toxic to say like you can't have, I mean, little kid, I don't blame the kid, mm-hmm. but say like this stuff is not for you because you're not the right gender for it mm-hmm. is something that I w- I'm hoping we're getting past. And maybe it's people like me who are the problem because we're, we're asking these questions and trying the, to no, no, think about the, the boxes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, don't think, I don't think you're the problem. I think the idea of there being things that are girl books or boy books or girl colors and boy colors. Like I, my cell phone has a pink case because right. I like the color pink. I think it's a cool color. And it's, there's only been a handful of times where people are like, Oh yeah, is that your wife's case? And I'm like, no, it's mine. It's it's a nice color. <laughs> but this idea of like gender and color seems so ludicrous. But I feel like we're we're getting slowly but surely past that idea where there are colors that guys can't wear and colors that girls can't wear and books that guys can't read and books that girls can't read. Like this I would hope we get past that. Not to say there can't be books aimed towards different audiences, but People outside the audience can still read it and still enjoy it. And that's and I, just as valid. And I feel like we're getting past that, not just in comics and like, you know, the subject matter, but like you were saying, even the comic shop has changed a yeah, little bit. Yeah, no, it's much more welcoming and inclusive space, which is great because when you're selling the thing with comic books sold in the direct market is that this is a store you have to go into to buy it. It's very hard to casually look at it unless you're when you're walking to a comic book store, it's like a porn store, right? Right. If you walk into a porn store, you are there to buy some pornography and you have to walk through the door knowing that you can't just sort of browse at the book. Like, Oh, here's some pornography. I'll check it out. You have to be committed. And comic book stores can be that same way sometimes where you have to feel like, I don't know if I like comics. I'm not going to go to a comic book store because I'm going to have to buy some comics. Like, I don't know yet. I'm, I'm not sure of it. And things like web comics have helped with that a lot where, you can now access comics without having to go to a comic book store and sort of dip your toe into the medium. And I have people email me saying, hey, I don't like comics, but I like dinosaur comics. And I'm like, surprise, you like comics. This is comics. It's mm-hmm. all comics. When I was telling people that I would interview you, they knew nothing about what you do except for dinosaur comics. And they're not it. people that you would associate with comics at all. Mm-hmm. They, and you just feel like, oh, you read dinosaur comics? Like, I didn't even know that. And I've known you for years. Yeah, like, no, that's great. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, this is this is the advantage of making things accessible like that, where you can just come across it in the comfort of your own home, and you don't have to deal with going to a comic book store. 
that said, there are great comic stores. I love them. Um, I'm not against comic store at all. I just feel like to sometimes to a new people, a new person, they can be they can be scary. And there's a there's a store in Toronto called Sidekick, which is half comic book store, half coffee book shop, and or coffee coffee shop coffee, coffee book, book shop, shop is cool because yeah. it, it is both but i love the idea of that because she gets people who come in for a cup of coffee and they're like what are these comics and that that solves the problem i'm talking about where it's scary to go inside because you know what to do in a coffee book in a coffee store coffee book store you know what to say in a coffee store you just walk in and you buy a coffee so you're, you're comfortable in that environment and then you can very easily and very low pressure check out this these comics and maybe get in the medium that way so i love that that sort of thing too okay so you started doing dinosaur comics as something like for yourself to like make yourself laugh yeah and like get into comics that way but now you're a full-on comic book writer how do you reflect on what has happened uh like is this what you wanted to be yeah it's great okay it's great it's it's crazy like it's it's interesting that i since i thought I had no comic book writer was a thing. I was like, well, I can never work at Marvel or DC because those are all artists there who are writing these stories and drawing them, which is obviously not true. But to end up, you know, writing, getting to play in the Marvel universe, getting to write, tell these stories is terrific. Like, I've got zero complaints about it. And it's also fun to still have Dinosaur Comics. It's still a thing I get to write. It's something that is uh, uniquely and only mine. So I'm not, I'm not worried about editors or whatever. I can say whatever I want in Dinosaur Comics. And that's all on me. Yeah, it feels very, very free. Is it going to continue no matter what? I mean, I, I said I'd like to stop it when it gets bad. Okay. It's hard to tell when it gets bad. <laughs> okay. um, I'm, I'm busier than I used to be for sure, but it's also, it's a comic that doesn't take very long to draw. <laughs> <laughs> Once I write it, it's pretty much done. So it's something I, I still enjoy and I like to keep, keep it going. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming in. Is there any, where can people find you? And is there anything oh, that you want to promote? Uh, yeah, you can find me at ryannorth.ca, which has links to all my stuff, or at dinosaurcomics.com, quants.com, poo.ca I have that also goes to Dinosaur Comics. And I guess my newest thing is uh, Romeo and Juliet, which we talked about. It's the choose-your-own-path version of Shakespeare, which mm-hmm. is great. And there's also a new Squirrel Girl graphic novel out called Squirrel Girl Beats Up the Marvel Universe, mm-hmm. uh, in which she beats up the marvel universe <laughs> and that's fun too yeah. all right well thanks for coming in oh my pleasure thank you for having me and we'll see you next time on speech bubble this has been speech bubble see you in the future friends i went to visit the hairy tarantula you know and how did it make you feel there you are uh, oh hi dear let's go to the hairy tarantula huh next to this quack it's therapy I- Well, stop. And keep these sample happy pills, pusher man. Maybe Freud would know where to put them. Harry Tarantula Games and Comics. Raising awareness trumps shrinking heads. 354 Young Street. Upstairs. Downtown. Online at H-A-I-R-Y-T dot com. That's HarryT dot com.